Seeing some of those clips kind of uh, causes you a little depression, doesn't it? A little discouragement along the way as you think about just a small sampling of some of the things that have happened in our in our world uh, just over the past few months, and that, that doesn't even take into account things that are going on in our worlds and our lives personally, or just even in our little smaller corner uh, of the world. Uh, there's there's just a challenge to how do how do I live? How do I kind of make sense of a, of a world that that at times seems to be so broken, so messed up, so against the, the, the plans and the, the purposes of God. You know, there's uh, similar folks asking similar questions <laughs> centuries ago. And to them, one of Christ's initial followers, Peter, wrote a letter that we know as First Peter. And in that, he talked to them about kind of navigating this world. And we want to look at that letter and, and ask God to teach us, even as he taught some of those first century believers about, well, what, what, is it, what does it mean to, to live, live God's way in a chaotic world? What does it mean to live according to God's design in a world that at times not only seems chaotic, but, but ungodly and even very much against the, the purposes of God? Where do I go as a follower of Christ to find encouragement for a world that that is often discouraging in the reality that we experience? And so we're going to dive into this letter, and we're going to spend some time over the next uh, several weeks just unpacking uh, what what does that mean uh, to live God's way in a very uh, chaotic world. And we want to begin in chapter 1. We want to begin with the first words, words that, that, that Peter penned to those centuries ago and, and ask God to be our, our teacher in that every step of the way. But as we kind of set the table for that, uh, I, I want to just uh, uh, begin with, uh, with a, a picture. Uh, Pat already uh, alluded to the fact that the Masters is going on just uh, a few hours down the interstate from us. And one of the, uh, the leading golfers uh, on the tour is not yet 25 years old. Jordan Spieth, uh, multi-million dollar uh, winner already in cash prizes, not to mention endorsements and all of those other things, uh, a three-time major winner. He's not on the uh, top of the leaderboard uh, going into uh, the last round today, but he's won the Masters uh, in the past. So uh, just just uh, an extraordinarily uh, uh, gifted and good golfer, uh, but many folks that know him say there's a whole lot more to his story. He is phenomenal and has attained some celebrity status for sure. But back home in Dallas, the real star of the Spieth family is not Jordan. It's his sister, Ellie. Ellie was born with a yet totally undiagnosed neurological disorder that left her developmentally challenged. In a New York Times feature piece, they put it this way, Ellie's life is a happy dance interrupted by cloudburst. Jordan simply calls her the best thing that ever happened to our family. She's the most special part of our family, he said. She's the funniest part of our family. 
Spieth can't comprehend what his life would be like without Ellie in it and how it would have impacted him personally. (coughs) With Ellie and how we grew up with her and her struggles and her triumphs, I think it just put life a, a little more in perspective than maybe it would have had we not experienced it. My parents are such great parents, I don't think it would have changed much, but we were able to see firsthand what someone who struggles like this is like, and it certainly took over our family. So maybe that's what helps me be normal. I don't know what the alternative is when everybody says I have maturity and I'm grounded. I think about growing up with Ellie. Jordan's mom puts it very succinctly and speaking to ESPN, she said, Jordan wouldn't be where he is today if he didn't grow up with Ellie. Jordan realizes this isn't real life at the Masters. Trying to sit around and have dinner when his sister doesn't want to eat, when everybody else is eating and has a fit, that's real life. She's the funniest member of our family, says Jordan. I really love when she's able to be out there, love spending time with her. It's humbling to see her and her friends and the struggles they go through each day that we take for granted. Jordan's father, Sean, says that he thinks Jordan will remain grounded. And if Jordan never wins another major, never returns to number one in the world, he'll know that that's only a piece of life and it's not all of life. What Jordan's story reminds us of is a truth that I think Peter wanted to drive home. And that is simply this, that what we focus on in life goes a long way to determining our experience in life. And you know this yourself. You, you know people who have gone through the same or very similar experiences, situations and circumstances, but their experience of that has been radically, radically different. Why? Because their focus was different. What we focus on in life goes a long way to determining our experience in life. When we look at this letter that Peter wrote, in many ways he's encouraging them to choose your focus, to choose what you're going to focus on as you go through the experiences of life, particularly the difficult, challenging experiences of life, because what you choose to focus on in life goes a long, long way to determining your experience of life. So I want to kind of set the stage by, by introducing a little of the background of, of this letter of 1 Peter. Let's just look at the first verse to, to get us oriented. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now we'll pause right there for just a moment. Peter perhaps is, is a well-known name to you. If you have read much of the New Testament, he was kind of the point person, the first among equals of that band of disciples, apostles that traveled with Jesus. He often engaged in foot and mouth disease, right? He kind of spoke and uh, sometimes regretted. It. He, he, he knew failure in following Christ. He was bold in his proclamation. He would never deny Christ. And then in that moment of push coming to shove, he, he failed miserably and he was kind of uh, broken over that. And yet God uh, restored him. Christ reached out specifically to him. And, and he brings all of that 
uh, to bear. Most folks feel like he's writing this uh, from Rome. If you uh, look at the the end of the book in chapter 5, verse 13, there's a reference to Babylon. He's in Babylon, and and that that kind of a code word, if you will, for how Rome was being viewed in that day. Most folks feel like this was taking place either right before or right at the start of the great persecution that uh, erupted under Nero's reign, uh, that which would eventually take Peter's life. And so he's probably writing just uh, in that window right before he will lose his life as a follower of Christ. His readers are scattered across Asia Minor, the area we would call Turkey today. He is writing to folks who are facing suffering and extreme persecution for their faith. But he reminds them of part of their identity, their elect exiles, that this is not their home, that all of their hope is not in just in the here and now and what they're experiencing in this moment, but in many ways, they're just passing through. He reminds them, even in using that title of something we'll all see more and more as we go through this letter, that this life is not all there is, that this life is actually preparation for eternity. He has a purpose in writing. The purpose is to encourage the purpose is to challenge. The purpose is to help them to live victoriously in the midst of hostility, to follow and trust Christ without losing hope and without falling into bitterness, to stand firm in the grace of Jesus Christ. Toward the end of the letter, uh, Peter wraps it up with these words, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He is trying to remind them of the grace of God that that sustains them and to stand firm in that and with that be able to live in a chaotic and oftentimes hostile and ungodly world to live as distinct followers of Jesus Christ. He's writing to people who need encouragement, maybe as you and I need encouragement along the way, writing to those who in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a variety of trials, needed to be encouraged. And through his writing, we can hear words of encouragement for the discouragement in our life along the way. And that's what I really want to focus on in these these first few verses as we unpack them here in chapter 1. What to remember when I'm discouraged. What to remember when discouraged. And one of the first things that Peter lifts up is to remember God has chosen. God has chosen me to be a part of his family. Look at the next couple of verses, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. At the beginning, Peter's reminding them, we have a living hope. It is is appropriate for us to begin to think about that coming off the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A hope that can be ours through that resurrection. And to know that God has chosen me. 
that God in love, God in grace, God in mercy has chosen me to be a part of his family, that I have been chosen by God. What was the basis of that choosing? Well, he tells us in verse 3, it's on the basis of his great mercy. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. I mean, think about this. God, God didn't look down and he didn't say, you know, boy, Jeff has so much to offer. I'm choosing him, right? It's not like, I don't, I don't know if they even still do this. That, you know, we were growing up, you know, it was recess time and you chose teams, right? You remember that, some of you, right? You chose teams, right? And, and you soon figured out, no matter who was doing the choosing, for the most part, you knew who was going to get chosen first right? You wanted the best athletes, the folks that were really good. So you always chose them and you kind of understood, okay, these folks are going to be picked first. These folks kind of in the middle and these folks were going to be picked at the very end, right? You kind of knew. We chose based on athletic ability, both on the capacity to maybe help our team win or occasionally somebody would just pick somebody because they were their best friend or something. God looked down, and he didn't say, oh, I'm going to choose you because you got it together. I'm going to choose you because you bring so much to my team. No, he said, because of my great mercy, because of my love, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your sin, In spite of your choosing your way instead of my way, I choose you. I choose you. He chose to fix his love upon us. He chose to fix his grace and mercy upon us. And that comes through what Jesus Christ did, that that work of the cross, that work uh, sealed and affirmed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. If I belong to Jesus Christ, these first couple verses say, there are some things I know to be absolutely true, that I have been chosen by the Father, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that I have been chosen in Him. I have been chosen in the Father, but I have been purchased by the Son. Purchased by the Son for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with Him his blood, that that, that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood that Jesus Christ came and, and lived that life that I was called to live, and he died that death on the cross, absorbing all the, the wrath of a righteous God. He, he declared, he cried out, it is finished. That debt has been paid in full, and we've been focusing on those things over the past couple of weeks on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and we are reminded in these moments that God chose me, and in Jesus Christ, I have been chosen by the Father. I have been purchased by the finished, completed work of the Son. I add nothing to it. And I have been set apart by the Spirit. He says, sanctification of the Spirit, that I have been set apart from the Spirit, that God has set me apart through His Holy Spirit, set me apart unto Himself. I belong to Him. He has purposes and plans that He wants to work out in and through my life. I have been set apart by the Spirit. If I am in Jesus Christ, this is what I know. 
God has chosen me. God has chosen me. Regardless of what's happening around me, regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of of my health, regardless of my economic prosperity at the moment, God in grace, God in mercy has chosen me. That's why I just keep coming back to say when folks say, how are you doing? It's always better than I deserve because I know I didn't deserve God to choose me. But in his great mercy, God has chosen me to be a part of his forever family. And nobody or nothing can take that away if I am genuinely in Jesus Christ. But that's not all that Peter says. As a part of God's chosen family, I can not only know God has chosen me, set me apart, purchased me, but that God is working in me. That God is working in my life. Let's stay in that second verse for just a moment. What is it that God's Spirit is doing as He's setting me apart? God's Spirit does at least two things. He cleanses you. He cleanses you through the sprinkling of the blood, the sprinkling with His blood that I have been set free. All that baggage, all those sins, all those things that, that have defined my life, that have shaped my understanding of who I am. He says, I have come to cleanse you. No longer does that sin have to define you. No longer does that sin have to dominate and control you. No longer does that become the identifying mark of your life, but you have a new identification. You have a new identity in Jesus Christ. You have been set free you have been cleansed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God's Spirit applies that cleansing. He cleanses me, and then He changes you. He changes you. That God loves you enough not to leave you exactly the way you are. And so He's going to move in my life. He's going to move in your life. He's going to change us. He's going to transform us. He's going to make us more and more and more into conformity with the image of Jesus Christ. He's going to keep working in my life and yours to make us the man, the woman that He designed and created us to be. God is going to be relentless. God's Spirit is going to be relentless in this. And he'll use all sorts of things to change me, to transform me for my best, for the fulfilling of my place in his kingdom, for his glory and his honor and his purposes. God is working in my life. When I see it, when I don't, when I recognize it, when I don't, when I affirm it and when I don't, God is working in my life. And that verse 2 tells us that there are two benefits that roll into my life and yours as a result of having God work in our lives. Do you see them there at the end of verse 2? We're richly blessed, grace, every single day, better than I deserve, that I am blessed in Him, blessed beyond any measure of fairness, that I have grace I can live my life knowing that I I am touched by grace, that every day, every moment is by his grace. I am blessed, and then I have a peace. We have an increasing freedom from anxiety and fear. No longer does anxiety have to control my life. 
that, that I know God has chosen me. Nothing will ever change that. I know that God is working in my life. He can even use uh, folks that might be intentionally working against my life. He can use that to accomplish his purposes. God is working in my life. And when I begin to really let that sink, not just in the head, but to the heart level of my life, I begin to experience a freedom from anxiety. I begin to experience what Paul talked about, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so at the very first of the letter, Peter just talks about, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, maybe you're, you're thinking this morning, Jeff, that, that sounds good. But man, I got to tell you, dude, it, feel, it feels a little bit like religious gobbledygook, right? I mean, yeah, I, I get it. God's chosen me. God's at work. But have you seen our world? I mean, have you any clue as to what's going on with me right now? In our family, in our situation, in our circumstance? I mean, what about my current problems? That doesn't change what God's doing. Look, if you, if you will, with me. We'll come back to verses 4 and 5 in just a moment. But skip down to verse 6 with me, if you will, because I want you to see this tied together. As, as, as God is, a God is a, a, at work in our lives, he is working even in the midst of our problems. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what is God doing in my current problems? He's testing. He's refining. He's testing and refining my faith. That God is at work even in the midst of that problem, even in the midst of that trial, even in the midst of that chaos. He is at work. He is testing. He is refining my faith just as, as gold would be refined by the, the heat. So my life, my, my faith is refined and tested and shows forth as gold as I go through the various trials of this life. Paul, who, who, who uh, knew Peter, and at times they, they, they even clashed a little bit along the way, but, but they were on that same mission uh, of, of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul knew trials. He knew challenges, and he talked about it this way. So we do not lose heart. He's writing to the Corinthians. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. Pause. I get it. When you're in the middle of it, it doesn't feel light, does it? It doesn't feel momentary. It feels heavy. It feels overwhelming. It feels like it's never going to get better. It's never going to change. But Paul understood what Peter understood and what they were trying to help the readers of their letters understand. God is at work in the midst of that. And this life, this moment is preparation for all eternity. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. They can't even begin to compare. As we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're here for just a little while. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is saying the same thing that Peter is. In the midst of the stuff, God is at work. And it may not feel like it in the moment, but what God is doing, you'll see, you'll understand a little better, you will appreciate from the perspective of eternity. And you'll begin to see that God had a purpose in it all. Adrian Rogers put it this way years ago, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. (laughs) A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. Yeah, you know, there, there are folks, and I've seen it, you've seen it, that sometimes they, they have great faith, you know, things are good, God is good, all these things, and then the pressures of life come. Uh, reality jumps in, the, 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 just the stuff of life pushes hard, and it seems like their faith that they, they talked about kind of collapses like a house of cards. A faith that can't be tested, can't be trusted. God uses the stuff of life. He uses various trials to test, to refine, to remove those impurities of our life, to to bring out the gold of genuine faith. In the Old Testament, the book of Job is a testament to how God sometimes chooses to allow and use trials in our life. And Job didn't fully understand it, particularly as he was going through it. And the people who were speaking into his life often were way off base along the way. But you get a glimpse of Job beginning to understand it. He talks about the God who knows him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, (laughs) tried, I'll be tried, I shall come out as gold. Because a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And God is at work. God's at work. He knows the way that you take. He knows where you are right now. He knows what you're going through. And he knows what he's doing in the midst of it. In a world that at times seems so chaotic, In a world that at times seems so opposed to the things of God, I can know that God is working in my life. Nancy and Ed Heisinger experienced this in their journey. Grand Rapids, Michigan. In December, they were at church rehearsing for the annual Christmas Festival of Lights program. While they were there, their home caught fire. Burned to the ground. But that wasn't their only tragedy that year. Just three months earlier, Nancy's longtime friend, Barb Post, a widow with two children, had died of cancer. Nancy and Ed had taken her two children, Jeff and Katie, into their home as part of their family, something they had promised Barb they would do. So when Ed and Nancy's house burned to the ground just before Christmas, it wasn't just their home that was lost. It was the home of two teenagers who had already lost their mother and their father. 
As circumstances unfolded, irony went to work. The tragedy that forced the Heisingas from their home allowed Jeff and Katie to move back to theirs. Since their home had not yet been sold following their mother's death, they and the Heisinga family moved in the night right after the fire. On the following Saturday, neighbors organized a party to sift through the ashes to search for anything of value that might have survived. One of the first indications they received of God's involvement in their struggle came as a result of that search. Somehow, a piece of paper survived. And on it were these words, contentment, realizing that God has already provided everything we need for our present happiness. Sit with that a moment. Realizing that God has already provided everything we need for our present happiness. To Nancy and Ed, this was like hearing God speak from a burning bush. It was the assurance they needed that he was there and that he was not silent. Nancy's biggest frustration now is dealing with insurance companies and trying to assess the material losses. Many possessions, of course, were irreplaceable, personal items such as photographs, things handed down from parents and grandparents. But her highest priority is Jeff and Katie, along with her two own children, Joel and Holly. The loss has been hardest on them, she says. They don't have the history of God's faithfulness that Ed and I have. We've had years to make deposits in our faith account, but they haven't. We've learned that if you fail to stock up on faith when you don't need it, you won't have any when you do need it. This has been our opportunity to use what we've been learning. What the world might view as a senseless tragedy, deserving of resentment, Nancy and Ed have seen God reveal himself to them and refine them through this fire as he pours out a full measure of, listen to these words, grace and peace. What did Peter say? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Even in a fiery trial, you can know God has chosen you to be a part of his family. God is still working in my life. But there's a third thing that Peter lifted before them in the opening words of this letter to say, this, this is where you focus when you experience discouragement along the way. And that is then the reality that God has secured my future. That God has secured my future. Let's back up uh, to verse uh, 4. As he was talking about God's great mercy in verse 3, the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various 
trials. He's talking about the the security that we have. My future has been secured, this inheritance that is mine that can never be taken away. And so that they would not miss it, Peter kind of piles up these descriptors here. And and I just want to walk through them very briefly this morning. He says it is an imperishable future, an imperishable inheritance. It's untouched by death. Death can, can take away a body. Death can, 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 can end a relationship, can remove you from a position, all these things. But this hope can never, ever, ever be taken away by death. It is imperishable. It is greater than death. It is a future that extends beyond the grave. It is undefiled. It is without defect or flaw. Everything that I have in this world has t- been touched by evil. It has some level of defect or flaw in it. But what God is preparing, what God has secured for you and I is without defect, without flaw. There won't have to be a 2.0 aversion come out, right? There won't have to be an update to fix the bugs along the way. It is fully and completely undefiled. It is unfading. It is not touched by time. You know, this is the time of the year you start to get outside a little bit, and and I don't know, maybe you start to look around, and and you start to look at some things that uh, the sun's kind of faded a little bit, right? And maybe it's some cover you had over the grill or the furniture, Maybe it's, a, it's, it's something on the side of the house. Or maybe it's even some furniture where the sun's come through the window and you think, you know, the color isn't what it used to be. It's kind of faded. It's not as vibrant. It doesn't look the same. Time is taking its toll. Right? But even though it'll be for eternity, its glory, its, its vibrancy will never fade. It will not change. It is secured. It won't be touched by time. He talks about it being kept. It's guarded. It's in safe keeping. God is, is watching over it. He takes those two words, it's kept, it's, it's guarded. This divine protection, it's a military term that speaks of a patrol, a guarding, a continuous action, that, that it is not going to be taken away, it's not going to be stolen, it's not going to disappear, it's not going to perish, it's not going to fade, it has been kept for you. And Peter reminds them, whatever happens in this moment, whatever happens in this life. It is temporary, but what God has secured for you is forever. It is eternal. And what happens in my life and yours when we begin to change our focus? Because remember, what we choose to focus on in life to a large degree determines what we experience in life. And what happens when I choose to experience on the fact that God has chosen me to be a part of his family? That regardless of what's going on around me, God is still working in me. And I choose to focus on the fact that God has secured my future. Peter tells us the result of that is joy. Is joy. Did you pick that up in verse 6 and verse 8? He talks about that in this you rejoice, verse 6. Skip down to verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with 
glory. That's what becomes real in my life. Rejoicing replaces resentment in my life when I begin to focus on these things. And so Peter is, is coming to these folks, and, and they know hardship. They know tough times. And, and many of, of those experience things that, that we don't even want to think about having to go through. And yet they, they could find an encouragement in it. When discouragement creeps in, he tells us to remember some things. Verse 9 talks about that which we have obtained, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Obtaining. It is, it is something we are presently receiving. It is right here, and it is still yet to come in all of its fullness. When discouragement creeps in, I think about the salvation that I am obtaining. I think about the fact that God has chosen me to be a part of his family. Theologically, we talk about justification. I have been declared just, right, in right standing, and a right relationship with God, all by his great mercy and grace. And so when that discouragement comes, when those accusations come, when those doubts come, I remember God has chosen me to be a part of his family. I have already begun to receive and obtain that justification in Jesus Christ. I know that God is still working in my life. That's sanctification. I am being sanctified, set apart by the Spirit. He is working in my life, conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ. I begin to to recognize, God, I don't always understand your methods, your timings, your way, but God, I know. I know that you are working in my life. I have a living hope because you are alive and you are active and you are at work in my life, and I know that God has secured my future. And there is a glorification yet to come. Disease doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. Discouragement doesn't have the final word. That there is a salvation that I have already obtained and yet still yet to obtain in all its fullness. This glorification, this future, this imperishable inheritance that has been made known to me through Jesus Christ. And then he kind of concludes this opening section by reminding them that this salvation, this message of salvation is something that God in his grace has revealed to them. It's not only here's this information over here, but it has been made relevant and has been revealed to you. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation... This salvation that takes care of my past, my present, and my future. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look this salvation this this 
unbelievable gift of God. Peter reminds us, the Old Testament prophets, they only glimpsed of it. They only saw it from afar. The Spirit of Christ was testifying through them of what was yet to come. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The, The prophetic utterances, you see so many of them quoted in the New Testament, pointed forward to Jesus Christ. So many of the images of the Psalms pointed forward to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament's prophets just saw it from afar. You and I have this incredible privilege that we live in a day and age where we can know it not from afar. We can know it right here, right now. The angels, Peter said, they marvel at this. They marvel. They long to look into these things. God acted in such grace and such mercy in such power and such maybe an unexpected way to them. They step back and marvel at what God has done through this gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this message that people proclaim in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we gather week by week. That's why we we thrust forth uh, missionaries all across the world. That's why people go into dangerous places where it's illegal to talk about. You can be arrested. You can be imprisoned. You can lose your life for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this marvelous gospel, this one and only message that can transform my past and present and future is for all people. And it is proclaimed in languages and tongues all over. Uh, listen, I, I was just sharing a couple weeks ago in our our new member seminar and sometimes we just we stink as baptists of celebrating what god's doing but do you realize sometimes i get tickled when a church tells me what they're doing i say listen i get to be a part of a group do you realize that this morning in the united states of america alone in southern baptist churches the gospel of jesus christ is being proclaimed in over 100 languages within the borders of our country You make that possible every time you give. You make that possible every time we give. It's not just about what God's doing here. It's about what God's doing through here across the nation and across the world. That gospel message is being proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. This salvation, believers today can experience it personally. And that is our hope, and that is our prayer. That is why we proclaim it. That is why we, we, we encourage, we, we try to equip. How, how can we as individuals share that message? It can, we can experience it personally today. But hear me clearly, because Peter made it crystal clear. Long before he wrote this letter, Peter stood before a, a crowd Many in that crowd perhaps would have been instrumental in seeing Jesus put to death on a cross. But there he, empowered by God's Holy Spirit, boldly proclaimed the message of the gospel. And he made it crystal clear. And there is, a salva- there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. All that Peter was talking about, you can focus on the fact that God's chosen you to be a part of his family. You can focus on the fact that God is still at work in your life. 
You can focus and celebrate the fact that God has secured your future. But that only comes through Jesus Christ. And so I'm just going to say again what we say week by week by week. If you're here this morning and you don't know, not just by reputation, not just a few facts, but you don't know personally Jesus Christ as the forgiver of your sin and the leader and Lord of your life, then for your sake, for the gospel's sake, don't leave this room without talking to somebody about it. We want you to experience the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the area set up in the back. There's some tables there right on the walls, the lettering, next steps. We want to help you take that next step of faith. Maybe it's your first step of faith. We want to continue to have that conversation with you. We want to have an area just to answer some questions that you might have. And if you're here today and you, you just sense, I need to know more, I'm not sure, I have a question, then before you leave this room, after we close the service in a few minutes, I'm going to encourage you, make your way to the next steps area. We want to help you as you take that step of faith, as you investigate what it means to experience personally this salvation in Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. There's not a thousand paths to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What I experience in life is determined to a large extent by what I focus on in life. And what I focus on in life is determined in a large extent by my relationship to Christ. So I want to tie this together. And I want you in just a moment to hear a story. Maybe you're familiar with some version of this story along the way. But I want you to think about maybe where you are today. And the truth that Peter's trying to drive home, that what we focus on in life goes a long way determining our experience of life. Check this out. A young woman visits her mother and, her eyes brimming with tears, tells her how difficult her life currently is. As soon as she overcomes one obstacle, another arises. She feels hopeless, tired, and she feels like she can't continue to struggle like she has been. Without saying a word, her mother took her by the hand and sat her down at the kitchen table. She then put three pots of water on the stove. In the first, she put carrots. In the second, eggs. And in the third, coffee beans. She let them boil in the water, still without saying a word. After about 20 minutes, she turned off the burners. She fished out the carrots and the eggs and put them into a bowl and ladled out some of the coffee. Then she turned to her confused daughter and asked her what she saw. Carrots, eggs, and coffee, her daughter replied. Her mother brought her closer to the bowls and asked her to feel the carrots. They were soft and mushy. Then she asked her daughter to take an egg and break it. The egg was hard-boiled inside. Finally, her mother asked her to take a sip of the coffee. The daughter smiled as she brought the mug to her lips, savoring the aroma and the rich taste of the coffee. What does it mean, mother? she finally asked. Her mother explained that the carrots, eggs, and coffee had each reacted differently when they faced the same adversity, the boiling water. 
The carrot went in strong, firm, and unrelenting, but wilted when subjected to the boiling water, becoming soft and weak. The egg started out fragile, a thin shell protecting its liquid interior, but became hardened by the heat. The coffee beans were unique. They were not drastically changed, but they transformed the boiling water instead. Which are you? the mother asked her daughter. When you're facing adversity, are you a carrot, an egg, or a coffee bean? Take a moment to ask yourself this question. Are you the carrot that seems strong, but with pain and adversity wilts and becomes soft and loses strength? Are you the egg that starts with a malleable heart, but with trial and adversity becomes hardened and stiff? Does your shell look the same, but inside do you carry a stiff spirit and a hardened heart? Or are you like the coffee bean, changing the very circumstance that brings the challenge? When things are at their worst, do you become even better and change the situation around you? Don't let adversity change you for the worst. Change the challenging situation for the better. What you choose to focus on in life, to a large extent, determines your experience of life. In Jesus Christ, Peter says you can choose a different focus. You can choose to focus on the fact that God's chosen you to be a part of his family, that he is still at work in your life, and that he has secured a future for you. And when you consistently focus in that way, it changes your experience of life. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer, please. Oh, Father, thank you that you are greater than. Greater than any challenge, greater than any difficulty, greater than uh, anything that will occur in our world. And Father, I, I thank you that, that you are greater than our sin and our rebellion. And Father, that, that you have acted in your great mercy on behalf of each and every one of us. And Father, I pray today, I pray, Lord, if there's any in this room right now that that, they just have a question, they're not sure. Father, I, I pray, give them courage. Give them courage to take a few steps and talk about their next step. Father, I pray that today you would just, just guide them into that. Lord, I pray, Father, for, for every one of us who name the name of Christ Jesus. Lord, we, we can get our focus so scattered. We, we, could, we, can, we can get kind of caught up in the stuff of the world and the stuff of life. Lord, would you help us today to choose a better way, to choose to live your way in a sometimes chaotic and ungodly world. And I'm just going to ask you to take a few moments more and be still in the presence.